Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight Lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. What is happening, guys? We have got something awesome for you today on the Inside Football Podcast with Bill Pullian. In today's episode, you guys have asked for it, and we are finally delivering it. This is our first ever Ask Bill Anything episode, and we cover a lot of fun stuff in this one. So get ready, sit back, relax, and enjoy. This is the Inside Football Podcast with Bill Pullian, and this is our first ever Ask Bill Anything. The lamp is lit on my end. I am glowing. It's lit and the clock is running. There we go. So we got the man, the myth, the legend. His clock is lit and you guys have been asking for it and we have been promising this for weeks. This is our first ever and hopefully the first of many Ask Bill Anything shows. And we cannot thank you enough for the plethora of questions that you guys sent in. We're going to try to get to as many as we humanly possibly can get to today. Uh, Highly likely we will not get to all of them and this will drift into another show in the future. But So we don't need to dilly-dally anymore. Let's dive into it. Question one. Uh, this is a good one. This happened over the weekend. Rich Eisen tweeted over the weekend that the Lions should hire Jim Caldwell back and choose a GM who knows him and go to work. Many of our fans have asked, would you be that GM? Well, I kind of doubt it, uh, only because, uh, of my age. Um, it'd be fun to do, but, uh, I I think there are a few other people on his list. Uh, that, that he would consider and that we both would consider uh, really good candidates for the job. But do you think you would serve the Tom Hagen consigliere roles? Um, that's entirely that's entirely within the realm of possibility. Yeah. Uh-oh. Maybe. Very you know, exciting. It's up to him. It's up. It would be up to him, but, and, and of course, whoever the team is, he goes to work, but uh, with, but you know, yeah. If you're asking me, could I fill that role? The answer is yes. The the uh, the only the only other comment uh, about Bill's age, which I think would be no factor. The other comment to me would be marital status, Bill. <laughs> 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 well, you know, I've, rep- I've represented you in many things, but I am not a divorce lawyer. I don't want to be there when I leave yeah. town. <laughs> That's a given. Hey, Rick, Rick and I are ready to move to Detroit for the show. Yeah, that's right. That's right. All right, let's go. Let's let's keep. Let's move ahead here. Uh, Bill, you know, um, over the years, you 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 know, you were in in in, uh, in three different venues uh, with the three teams. Which one would you say was the toughest for visitors to play in, and what was the toughest? venue for you to play in over the course of a career, you and your teams? Well, of the three, um, Carolina is not in the mix. 
simply because uh, the, both the acoustics and the and the fan engagement is nowhere near what it is in in Buffalo or Indianapolis, um, and, and and so it, it comes down to Buffalo and Indianapolis. There are and there are two um, they're two separate issues. Buffalo is a hard place to play because of the avidity of the fans. They're fervid. They're they're out there in all kinds of weather. Um, they show up on Thursday to tailgate. I mean, it's really it's an it's an amazing an amazing experience, and they make it hard on the visiting team. Uh, from the time the bus uh, rolls into the parking lot until uh, until the time they leave, it's it's hard. Um, and then the weather is so difficult. Um, you know, from Veterans Day on, Buffalo is a hard place to play for a visiting team, and God help an NFC team from warm weather who uh, who who can't you know, and can't fathom what's going on. Um, there was a famous time when the Arizona Cardinals came in and, uh, and, and, and they had to punt the ball. They were play, it was a close game in, midway in the second quarter. They had to punt the ball from deep in their own end. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, it was right around Veterans Day when the first storm comes howling across Lake Erie. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and, uh, the wind was blowing about 45 or 50 miles an hour, and the punter punted the ball and went directly back over his head, and Steve Tasker <laughs> recovered for a touchdown, I think. And that was – the route was on from there. And then famously, in the uh, in the 91 uh, championship game, 90 season, 91 championship game against the Raiders uh, – it was beautiful Buffalo weather, to use a phrase coined by Ted Marchabroda. It was 17 and sleeting. And uh, <laughs> the sky was slate gray. Uh, the fans had been in an uproar all weekend. You can imagine, you know, the Bills are going to go to the Super Bowl for the first time if they win the game. Um, the Raiders were huddled in the tunnel before the warm-up, and, and they, were, they, they, they didn't want to go out on the field. They, they were. It was so nasty that they, they were sort of milling around. Some were on the telephone. There was a public telephone in the tunnel trying to make reservations to get their families to Tampa because it was a one-week Super Bowl. And uh, I happened to mention it to Marvin. He said, good, maybe we'll disappoint them. And we did to the tune of 51-3. to three. But they were not happy <laughs> to be in Buffalo that day. <laughs> and a little... More Indy? Oh, uh, Indianapolis, I'm sorry. Uh, Indianapolis, because of the acoustics, uh, if the roof is closed and the windows are closed, um, it, the acoustics are, are really great for the, the home team. It's a hard, hard place to play, and the fans are every bit as fired up as they are in Buffalo. Uh, they, they, you know, they, too, are uh, so loyal to their team and so excited since Peyton got there, you know, the worm turned completely football was fifth in the pecking order in Indianapolis when Peyton got there. And, and it's now number one by a wide margin. Um, part of the problem was that, um, and we'll probably do another uh, complete show on this, but in order to get the stadium built, um, you know, the, the windows had to be in there. The roof had to be in there. Um, and, and Jim Irsay loved the, the view, and television loved the view. I mean, it was just so dynamic looking into downtown 
especially at night. And uh, Jim always wanted the windows open and the roof open if, if, he, if he could have it that way. And Adam Venetieri would lobby me week after week, Bill, make sure that the, the roof's closed and the windows are closed. I said, Adam, I can't always do that. I got I, I to lobby with the owner. <laughs> Bill, make sure the windows are closed and the roof is closed. <laughs> so we would have the God, thank God for Pete Ward, who was our, who was the chief operating officer. He was the ambassador uh, who, who helped make those things work. But always when there was a big opponent uh, such as New England or somebody like that, Tennessee coming in, uh, for some reason, the, the roof and the, the windows were always closed. <laughs> just a little bit louder. Yeah. So uh, I, I just got to say, you mentioned two people uh, in there, two terrific people, uh, Ted Marchabrode and Pete Ward, who were good friends of both of ours. So uh, regards to, to Pete and uh, hi to, hi to Ted's family. All right, Scott. I'll get killed on Twitter if we don't ask. So, But what was the toughest venue you had to play in, not including the places that uh, – not including Indy, Buffalo, or Carolina. What was your least favorite yeah, I, place to go on the road? Excuse me. I, I, I forgot about the, the, the last part of the question. Um, I, I, Seattle, as an outdoor stadium, is, um, is absolutely the worst, followed closely by Kansas City. Kansas City acoustics are not designed the way Seattle's is. The Seattle's are designed to reflect uh, or deflect noise back down onto the field. So you can hardly hear yourself think um, – Kansas City, the fans are raucous and and they're into it and and they know when to cheer and when not to cheer, and uh, and and it, that's tough to play. It's really hard. Uh, and then New Orleans in the NFC is by far the hardest, and because it is it's so much smaller than the other two venues in terms of square footage, I think, um, and because the fans just scream and scream the whole time. They know what an advantage they provide. You actually get a headache playing there. And and visiting teams often, particularly those that are not used to playing there, you know, from the other conference, visiting teams will often have many, many uh, false starts, not because the crowd gets them, but because they can't concentrate with the noise. It's so, I mean, you, you literally get a headache. And you know, do they do they up the decibels a little bit mechanically? I wouldn't be a bit surprised, but all's fair in love and war. But I know this: <laughs> that was a three Advil trip on the way home from win or lose from that game. And and a three Advil trip is definitely that's definitely a home court advantage. Three Advil trip. So. Yeah, no question. Oh, and any trip home from New Orleans is a three Advil trip, no matter what you do, whether you go to the <laughs> well, go to the uh, dome or not. But, but yeah, that involves other things, though, Scott. Different kind of a headache. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> Very true. All right, on to the next one. Can Bill talk about what leadership traits all great leaders share in common? Um, yes. Um, this is by far not definitive, but this, this is my experience in reading a great deal about great leaders and, uh, and then being around some in my career. Um, number one, vision. They have the ability to see what the future may be and and to envision what they want their organization to look like and act like and perform like. And then 
they're able to communicate that vision to their subordinates. So vision number one, communications number two, three, honesty and sincerity. Um, the communication is, and vision are wonderful. If you're not honest and sincere, the people who work with you uh, are, are going to see through that. So those three traits or four traits, if you will, are absolutely paramount. And then beyond that, uh, equanimity and calm in the face of peril and difficulty um, the, the old story, if you don't have a strong and calm uh, leader in a time of difficulty, uh, the troops will look like sheep huddled before the wind. Uh, there has to be a bell cow, and the bell cow has to say, follow me, and, and, and the troops have to say, yes, sir, aye, aye, sir, uh, because, not because they, they're forced to do so, but because they 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 believe in the leader and his plan and if if you flinch in the face of difficulty if you lose your cool in the face of difficulty if you um if you don't treat people um in a way that's uh that 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 values them um then they won't follow when things get tough um thomas paine uh wrote about Sunshine Soldiers and Summer Patriots. Um, uh, Sunshine Soldiers and Summer Patriots are a dime a dozen. So are leaders like that. But it, it's it's in the dead of winter in Valley Forge that the real leaders come forth and the real patriots show up. So and real, uh, you know, not not New England patriots, but, <laughs> but American <laughs> patriots. Um, and, and and so. Um, that plus empathy, uh, the ability to walk in another's shoes, to feel somebody else's pain, to understand what they're going through, and to recognize that that and 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 validate with words or deeds or both um, there the fact that you recognize. The sacrifice, or the they're going, or they're making, or the pain they're going through, the difficulty they're facing. If you have that, um, and you have to, um, then you become someone that not only they will follow because of your competence and calm, but because they they truly value you as someone who values them. Um, and and so, I, I've learned over the years watching the Tony Dungy's, the Marv Levy's, the Paul Tagliabue's in, in my own business, the Wellington Maras, um, that those are the traits that are really important. And if you just transfer that to government, um, you know, much has been said about lack of empathy with the present occupant of the White House and much of what he says is tone deaf and much of what the people around him say is tone deaf and that's because that quality is lacking. It's, it's not a political statement, it's a fact. Uh, and and so it's it's harder for people uh, to follow uh, the but th- those are the qualities that all the good leaders, great leaders I've been around have. 
And, Bill, it's interesting because, yeah, I mean, it's such a good analysis because that's true whether it's football or basketball. That's true whether it's business or politics. That's true whether it's being uh, the, 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 the teacher of a sixth-grade class. I mean, it's, it's all those things that, in essence, are in the end going to catalyze and inspire uh, people to, to, to heed what you say and to, and to move to action. So it's a great list. Uh, all right. Um, Here's one, Bill. This is this is uh, so. What was the biggest potential trade that Bill was involved in that almost happened but didn't? I wouldn't say almost, but it's an interesting story. Uh, sometime around nineteen um, eighty-six or seven, eighty-five or eighty-six. Um, Al Davis called me and he said, uh, we'll give you any 10 players on our team for Jim Kelly. And I said, oh, okay. Jim Kelly was not signed by us then. He was playing in the United States Football League, but everyone knew that was soon going to fold up and his rights would revert to us. So what Al was asking for was his rights. So I I went to... uh, Mr. Wilson, Ralph Wilson, our owner, and I said, here's what Al offered. And he said, well, I know Al well. He's really not offering that. But but go ahead, make up your list and uh, and, and see, uh, you know, who it is that uh, uh, he might be willing to deal. And so uh, I made up the list, and, and on it was Howie Long and, and, and Tim Brown and Marcus Allen, all the names, you know, that he had, Pick the top 10 players on the Raiders. That's who was on the list. And Al said, uh, okay, um, I'll give you a call back. Let me consider this. I'll give you a call back. I'm still waiting for the call. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, That's going to be very long distance. Yeah, yes, <laughs> indeed. And, and, and we never spoke about it again, uh, even though we had a, you know, as time went on, we had even a more cordial relationship. But, uh, but that was, it, 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 you know, Mr. Wilson and I kind of took it seriously. It's, well, maybe he'll do it. And then if that's the case, we'll consider it. Um, and then the, the other trade that was, um, that, that we turned down was from the Houston Oilers. Um, they included their starting quarterback, who was pretty good, and um, and they gave us the names of ten players, and we could pick um, five of the ten. Um, we ended up liking seven of them when we went through the de- the uh, the uh, exercise. And Coach Levy, we were in Buffalo at the time. Coach Levy said, uh, "Well, you know, let's ask for the." the seven <laughs> in addition to the quarterback and uh, see what they come up with. And uh, so uh, I took it to Mr. Wilson and he said, no, no, we're, 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 we're not trading the rights to Jim Kelly. We're going to sign Jim Kelly. And I said, Mr. Wilson, this is, this is going to cost a million dollars or more. And he said, I know that we're going to sign Jim Kelly. And so we did. I called Lad Herzak, the, uh, GM of the uh, Oilers back and said, thanks, but no thanks. Right. And it turned out to be a pretty good decision. <laughs> it worked out. That, that's one of the, that's one of the strange ones that worked out. 
All right. Well, this is going to be one of my personal favorites because I never get to ask these kinds of questions. So here we go. I'm sure we're going to do this in greater detail as we get closer to the draft. Uh, Take in early December, Lawrence or Fields, who do you take, Bill? Well, early December doesn't count to begin with. (laughs) It used to. This is Uh, morphing into one of my questions. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, In the, in the, Days of the, uh, in the in the early days of the draft, all the way up through the 1960s, uh, the NFL used to draft in January, uh, so it would have meant something. Um, in in the USFL years, because of competition for the players, we drafted in January. Uh, but it no longer does because we draft now at the end of April. So there's a lot of work to be done between then and now. Um, I, I'm watching both guys um, right now with less than 45% of the precincts reporting to uh, <laughs> borrow another yes <laughs> political metaphor. Um uh, because there's so much work to be done and so much football yet to be played, including championship college football, which really means something when you're, when you're deciding on those guys. Uh, I would say Lawrence is ahead uh, based purely on the fact that Ohio state has played very few games two, I believe maybe three and, um, and Indiana who is a really good defensive team because they have a very, very good defensive scheme and a really good rush scheme really gave Haskins a lot of problems. That's his worst game uh, as a a Buckeye. So I would give Lawrence the edge, but there's still 55% of of the precincts yet to report. It's going to be those damn absentee ballots. It's going to change everything. The number one absentee ballot is uh, is from uh, Provo, Utah, with Wilson, and number two is uh, is, is the young man at uh, in Gainesville, Florida. Those are guys that uh, weren't on the ballots when they were printed. It's true, but I, I also I also wanted to add. I just looked at the magic wall, and Lawrence is ahead in the popular vote, but Fields leads in the electoral college. <laughs> yeah, so there you go. Well, we'll see. There's a long way to go. All right. So uh, so I've been through this with you personally many times, Bill, but what was your role or generally the role of a GM on game day? Well, um, that's a good question. Let me take you back to the, um, to the previous day. <clears throat> Excuse me. Saturday is a, is a walkthrough practice, not much done. So I would usually take Saturday in, in, in addition to Thursday night and go to a college game. I was very fortunate in Indianapolis that I could drive to virtually everywhere in the Big Ten um, and, and Louisville, uh, you know, South Bend, et cetera. So it was easy to get around and get to see college games. So uh, and if we were on the road, I would go to a game nearby where we were going to play. Um, so typically in, in a road game, I'd arrive at the hotel somewhere around, you know, between eight and ten at night, depending on how long the trip was. And then uh, if I was in the hotel by that time, I'd attend the snack, uh, which is at 10 o'clock after the, the last meeting. 
and uh, and I and talk with the head coach to make sure that everything was okay. Um, talk with the trainers to make sure you know that the people that we thought were ready to play were ready to play, etc. And then um, the next day, um, I would work out first thing in the morning. Um, get a good long workout in because it's a long day and it's a strenuous day. Um, go to the go to church. <clears throat> we had a mass for Catholics and a chapel service for Protestants in the hotel, uh, so nobody ever left the hotel. Um, and and then um, go to the stadium on the road. Um, I would be on the second bus, so I'd get there sometime between. Um, three and a half or three hours before game time. Um, the um, uh, If I were home, I'd usually be at the stadium four hours or so before game time. And the first thing I would do would be to sit down with the coach and write up the inactives because they have to be given to the officials 90 minutes before the game, and that's the official lineup. So anybody who's inactive is ineligible uh, to play that day. Usually the coach will have talked to um, the players who are going to be active, inactive the night before, uh, we, we always did that because we didn't want anybody surprised. If there was a late uh, issue with a medical guy that we were going to work out, we would usually do that two and a half hours before game time. And the trainers would, and, and the position coach would go out there. I would go out. Uh, sometimes the head coach would go out, often, other times not. Um, the coordinator often was. And, and they would put him through a workout to see if he were capable of, of handling the uh, um, the stress of the game. Obviously, the doctors would be there. And then they'd make the decision on the spot. And we'd tell the player, yeah, you're good to go, or no, you're not. And, and, and then we'd inform the player, if he was not good to go, we'd inform the substitute who was going to be active, who'd, who'd also been informed that this process was going to take place. So then we would go to what is called the 90-minute meeting where uh, myself and the head coach would meet with um, the um, two of the officiating, officiating crew, not the referee, um, two members of the officiating crew who are, who are uh, uh, designated to come to your locker room, um, get the inactives from you, and give you the inactives from the other team. The inactives are exchanged on game day. So... We would we would then know who was going to be inactive for the opposition. So the first thing I would do when we got the inactives was to note that on a flip card, and I'll I'll, I'll tell you why in a second. Um, during that meeting, they would ask, uh, "Do you have any trick plays? Do you have any issues that you want to make us aware of?" Um, rarely, I would have something that I'd want to talk to them about, like somebody who was mic'd up or not mic'd up. Um, but that's rare. Um, usually the head coach will have a trick player or two that he wants them aware of so that they're not, um, they're not caught unawares. He would say when we get in this formation and they would, he'd draw it up for them. We get in this formation, be aware that this may be a flea flicker. This might be a triple reverse. You know, this might be a Philly special, that kind of thing so that they don't kill the play early or make a mistake officiating it. And then every once in a while, um, the, the coach would lobby, you know, watch out for 31 uh, on the opposition. You know, that guy holds all the time. 
you know, he's, he, there, there's always that that one little prayer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> to try to get your point of view across. And then um, everybody shakes hands and wishes each other luck and away you go. And then at that point, um, the game is in the hands of the coaches. Um, I would go outside following the 90-minute meeting and usually um, say hello to my counterpart um, from the other team, um, including uh, the owner if he was there, uh, and, uh, and, and chat. Oftentimes it was uh, substantive. You know, you'd say, what are you hearing? You know, any trades in the offing, things of that nature. You might even have a slight, a, a, you know, brief trade discussion. Say, you know, we're interested in moving so-and-so, and if, if, if you have any interest, give me a jingle, um, that kind of thing. Wish each other luck and uh, and then go on our way. The, the warm-up would begin. Um, in Indianapolis, oh, well, in Indianapolis, Jim Irsay would arrive um, Usually, oh, about a, maybe 40 minutes before game time. So we would be just wrapping up the the warm up. So I'd, I'd, you know, I'd talk with him briefly. He'd wish the coach luck and head up to his suite in uh, Buffalo. Unless it were a real big game, Mr. Wilson really was never around before game time. He was always around afterwards, obviously. And in the in Carolina, uh, Mr. Richardson was. I don't know. He was in the locker room. You know, I, I'd get in there five hours before game time. He was there already. I don't, he, he would sit there and brood, <laughs> it seemed like, <laughs> or go, go around and talk to people. Uh, and he was always in the dressing room. I think he was wanted to check if he was on the active list. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Maybe. Old habits die hard. That's right. He was a former player, so uh, that that's right. Because offensive linemen, you know, are there usually six hours before the game time. They're on the first bus. Sometimes they need their own bus. But the uh, uh, Mr. Richardson would be in the locker room, uh, you know, talking to players and trying to pump them up or give them advice or whatever. Uh, the other two owners uh, never really went near the locker room pregame. Uh, the flip card that I told you that I annotated would uh, would – stay in my hand and I would go directly to Peyton's locker and the two quarter, the, the backup quarterbacks locker next to him. And I would give him the inactives and he would mark them down on the little chart that he kept, uh, which would tell him. And, and we discuss, you know, that, that would mean, uh, let's say, uh, uh, so-and-so is out. Uh, and, and Peyton would say, well, who's the nicker nickel going to be? I'd say it was, it'll be 27, you know, based on, the scouting report and things of that nature. So that he was anxious, very anxious to get the inactives. And, um, and so as soon as that 90 minute meeting ended, I would go right to him and give him the inactives so he could get in his mind what numbers he was looking for on the field in a, in a, in a given situation. Um, he was interested obviously in the other team's defense, didn't pay much attention, um, to the offense. Uh, and then, um, once, the once we finished the warm-up, I would shake everybody's hand, wish the coaches well, and on up to the press box and uh, and gnaw on my knuckles for three hours. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, 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 will, I will say the game changes when you're sitting next to Bill Polian in the press box watching. It is not the same experience as sitting in your living room watching it on TV. <laughs> That's all I'll say. 
Pretty good. All right, here we go. On to the next one. If you had stayed in Indy beyond the 2011 season, what would you have done at the top of the 2012 draft? Would you have taken a QB, Luck or Griffin? And if you took one of them, what would you have done with number 18? Well, let me take you back to um, the previous August when the strike ended. Um, we had to do Peyton's contact, a contract. I had not seen him since the, the lockout began, which was in February. Um, he'd been through a, 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 an exploratory surgery at that point, which, as we later found out, didn't work out very well. Um, we weren't able to be with him or, or t- even talk with him uh, because of the lockout rules. The um, so this was the first conversation we'd had face to face, and um, he was he said he was feeling okay. He was not a hundred percent, but thought that he would get there by the start of the season. Um, and I had no problem with that at all because I knew his work ethic, and, and fully expected that that was the case. I told him about the parameters of the, of the contract, and he said that's fine. I don't. There's no need to haggle. Um, you know, I'll tell Tom Condon to get it done. There's no need to be holding out. Um, and I said, okay, fine. And then we had um, a really long and and an emotional chat about the future. And I said, look at, you know, my feeling is, I mean, the first thing he said to me was, how long are you going to go? Because I said this, I anticipate that this may be your last contract. And he said, it, it probably is. Because uh, we were looking at five or six years. And uh, and he said, what are you going to do? And I said, well, my, my thought was that we'd always go out together. Um, I'm going to be dialing back some. Um, I, I'm not going to be going on the road as much as I used to. But, um, but uh, you know, I, I, I'd, really, I'd really like for us to go out together. And uh, and he said, yeah, that would that that would be great. That would be great. And I said, look, my feeling is this. And and obviously, I'm not the owner. I'm just an employee. But I I would like for you to go out like Jeter. You know, you're you're the you're the icon. You're the franchise. and, And you ought to be a cult for the rest of your career. And he said, that's really what I want. That's truly what I want. And I said, now you got to understand that it's my responsibility to uh, uh, to make sure that that the cupboard isn't bare when we both leave. So um, if there's it, it, we, we have to start looking for your successor, um, probably this coming draft. And, and maybe he's not there and maybe he is. I don't know. But uh, uh, if that guy's on board, then then he's on board until until you're ready to hang it up. Um, he's not a threat, but he needs to be a successor and he needs to be prepared um, to take over when you leave. Not unlike Aaron Rodgers with Brett Favre in Minnesota. And he said, well, he wasn't too thrilled about that, <laughs> very honestly, <laughs> as I expected he wouldn't be, as I expected he wouldn't be. He said, it's kind of an awkward situation. I said, I know it is. But if you think about it, 
it makes perfect sense for the franchise. And, and, and that's, you know, you want that for the franchise. I want it for the franchise. And we'll make it work. I mean, believe me, as long as I hear, I'm here, no one's supplanting you. And, and he said, I know that. And so he said, okay, that's great. Let's get the contract done and, and we'll go forward and hopefully it'll all work out the way we both want it to. I said, that's, that would be my fervent hope. So um, I, I still get a, a bit emotional when I think about it. And then, of course, the best laid plans of mice and men went all to hell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in, a, in a heartbeat. <laughs> now, had he been healthy, had he been healthy even half the season, we would not have had a chance at Luck. Luck was going to go number one in the draft. RG3 was likely going to go second. And so there was no opportunity. There would have been no opportunity. We wouldn't have been gone two and 14. So there, there would have been no opportunity for us to draft Luck. So it's kind of, or even RG3. So it's a moot point. Um, but, uh, you know, who knows who we might have taken. I clearly, clearly, you know, had said both to him in that meeting and, and then, and publicly even before that, that, we had to be thinking about a successor. It would have been foolhardy not to. Um, but had he returned, um, had Jim wanted him to return, um, the the likelihood is that we would have drafted Luck. I mean, there was no question about that. We'd made that decision the night before we were let go. Uh, my son Chris, who was the assistant GM, and I um, – uh, well, actually, Chris was the GM. I was. Yes, I was he was. The yes, he was. Team pr- yeah, I was the team president. Jim called us into the office before we left for Jacksonville and said, um, "You know, if we win the game, who are we taking?" And we both said, "Luck." There's, there's absolutely a, a separation between the two, assuming that everything we know now is true and there are no untoward situations. It's luck. So we presumed that luck would be. In the in the you know in the bullpen, and uh, and that Peyton would recover and come back. Jim, on the other hand, was terribly terribly concerned about Peyton suffering a career-ending or maybe even life-changing injury, because he did have a serious th- uh, spinal condition, so uh, which required. Uh, you know, a, a serious operation, and and he wasn't coming around. I mean, it was it was it took a long, long time. So uh, Jim was really concerned about that, and Jim had made up his mind and and let me know, without any discussion, that there was no chance that Peyton would ever be traded. That wasn't going to happen, uh, because his father had traded Johnny Unitas, and he was not going to do that. And that's Jim Irsay to a T. I mean, he he's he he was devoted to and thrilled to have had Peyton with him all those years, and he wasn't going to trade him. So the only thing that was possible was a release. And uh, and after uh, after uh, myself and and a few others had been let go, Coach Caldwell among among them, um, ultimately. Uh, Jim released Peyton, and and he went to Denver and finished his career and had four more years and two more Super Bowls, which um, I think during that conversation, 
um, that I mentioned previously, we talked, and he said to me, how far away are we from another Super Bowl? I think one more or two more good drafts, and then we're back to where we were. I don't know if that we'll find another Bob Sanders. I'm, I'm looking like the crazy to find him, but I don't know if he's <laughs> out there. But the fact of the matter is the rest of it, um, the rest of it is uh, is going to be in place. We'll be we'll be in good shape. We'll be able to challenge at least uh, for you know two of the last four years that you're here. And by challenge, I don't I don't mean being a, a fan favorite or you know a media favorite. You know, legitimate football guy discussion are we good enough to beat new england seven days a week and twice on sunday the answer to that would have been yes Mm -hmm. well i know that was a tough time for you for many many reasons but i know the 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 part with peyton was very very sensitive so i this is a perfect segue into the next question bill if you had not gone into football as a career what would you have done well, probably law enforcement. Um, my family was encouraging me to think about police, FBI, et cetera. Um, I, I thought about it. I really didn't want to. Um, I, I, I would have been happy to be a head high school coach someplace. Um, as my college coach brought me along and gave me more responsibility and, and, and made it clear that he thought I would be a good coach, uh, I began to set my sights a little higher, so I would have been very happy to be um, a head coach at the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy or someplace, you know, some small school, um, and and live my life that way. It would have been fine by me. God saw another plan, thank God, but... Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but football was what I wanted to do. That was sort of your destiny, you know? Yeah, Mike Shashevsky. Mike Shashevsky has a has a great line. I've borrowed a number of lines from him over the years, and I'm grateful for it. Uh, he he said he knew what he wanted to be at 16 and was fortunate enough to have lived that. So was I. Mm-hmm. And and we will say for the the uh, uh, Merchant Marine Academy, it was good enough for Otto Graham, right? So you know. Well, he was at Coast Guard. Oh, Coast Guard. You're right. I apologize. You were going Merchant yes. Marine. All right. Coast Guard. Yeah. You may, maybe the Coast Guard, but okay for you. But go ahead, Scott. Yeah, here we go. So this comes from one of our super, super fans. Have you ever felt comfortable giving a one-year college starting quarterback a top half of the first round grade? For example, Trubisky or Haskins? Or is there not enough tape slash experience to draw from? Thanks. It's really a good question. The answer about comfort is no. Um, and, and I was pretty outspoken on ESPN and other places, serious radio, about the fact that I, I didn't think there was enough track record with Trubisky to take him high and, and have a lot of confidence that he was going to make. Um, and But that's an old school guy hollering into the wind. Screaming at clouds. Yes, Yes. Banging at the moon. The uh, uh, the fact of the matter is that the the media pressure, uh, the amount of money we charge for tickets, suites, uh, etc. Drive the value of a quarterback in the draft well beyond their capabilities, 
well beyond their capabilities. And the 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 media pressure, if you will, the, the noise, I, pressure is not the right word, the media noise, if you will, uh, drowns out uh, your, your common sense, uh, the analytics, all the other things that you try to do um, to, to make the right decision in the draft. And with a quarterback, so many other people who should not be involved are involved. The marketing guy or gal has an opinion and makes it known. You know, he or she doesn't walk into the GM's office or the scouting director's office and say, hey, by the way, just so you know, Manning sells more tickets than Leaf. Uh, actually, the, the reverse would have been true. Leaf would have sold many more tickets than Manning. Um, but, but, he or she says it around the building, says it around town. It, it, it's quoted. Uh, you hear it. And, and it's designed to be heard by the people in the bunker, uh, which is what others in the building refer to the scouting offices. Um, the owner certainly weighs in with his opinion. Those close to him, be they family members or business associates or friends, weigh in uh, constantly. Everyone has an opinion. It all gets play, played back to uh, the general manager at, at some point, uh, and, and you have to deal with it. And then ultimately you get to the point where you go through all of your mock drafts and you look around and you say, if we want this guy, even though we're not sold on him and we wouldn't take him here in any other circumstance, if we want him um, and we need him, we're going to have to take him high. And that's what Ryan Pace did with Trubisky. And I, I applauded and still applaud today um, the guts that he, that, that he had to go up there and make that pick. They needed a quarterback. Um, he was, you know, clearly qualified, if you will. Um, didn't belong in that spot in the draft. None of the quarterbacks did. Goff, I guess, was the other one, if I'm not mistaken. But... Um, they get, they get, there's a term for it now, uh, coined by the draft Knicks who try to cover their tracks because so many of these guys fail overdrafted. Yeah. It's like overserved. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and the two actually that, might have something in common. <laughs> that's always going to be the tough one. Cause that's the, that's the Mahomes, uh, Sean Watson draft where I think, uh, that's always going to be tough. You took the words right out of my mouth because the reverse is true as well. Guys who don't get the hype, either people who come into the process late or for whatever reason they're not hyped enough, tend to fall down. People tend to think, well, maybe this guy isn't really that good. Or Mahomes is playing in that wild and crazy uh, uh, spread offense. And, and and he was wild and crazy. I mean, he made some of the – he didn't have the receivers he has now, but he made some of the same throws. <laughs> they just weren't complete. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, uh, you know, his, his name wasn't mentioned a lot, so it tended to be devalued. They tend to fall. And good, smart people like Andy Reid 
who's as level-headed as they come and who puts the earplugs in at, at draft time and just goes about his business, saw what Mahomes was and, and jumped up and traded up and made a big move to get him, and the rest is, is, is positive history for the Kansas City Chiefs. And it proves once and forever that you should take the best player, not the guy who's hyped, not the guy that everybody thinks you should take, not the guy that everybody says you should take. And in the end, as a GM or as a head coach, you have to sit at the table with the owner, the head coach, just the three of you, and say, look, I have a conviction on this guy. I, I know I'm betting my job on it. That goes without saying. But I have a conviction on this guy. I think this is our guy. And is it going to be popular? Absolutely not. But I'll take the heat. And, and, and you have to just convince them that this is the right thing to do. So, so Bill, you, I think you wonderfully expanded that because it's not a, just about insufficient sample size. You know, it's it's all those other factors that even if you have plenty of tape and he's played, you know, you you see what he's done for years. The, the same questions still come up, affected by these these other things. And as you said, uh, going back to uh, the uh, Manning Leaf, the certainly the media deluge at the end there was Leaf. And that would have that would have been the popular pick, uh, even though obviously it would have been you know as bad a, a decision as anybody could make in, in football. So, sort of again leads into the next question, but in another way because you said take the best guy, but you meant the, the truly best guy at that position. What about the old the old adage? The the next question that our listeners asking is about. What about the best player available, for, and meaning versus need philosophy? Where do you stand on that? Very simple explanation. When the need line and the player's grade line cross, then take him. If they don't, if you have a need for a quarterback, uh, as an example, and... Uh, you're drafting 15th and the highest grade you have on a quarterback is somewhere in the middle of the second round. Don't take him. That's crazy. That's called reaching and, and you, and you shouldn't do it. Whenever you reach, you're wrong. There is absolutely no doubt in my mind that that statement is 95% correct. Whenever you reach, you're wrong. That's been my experience. So when the need line crosses the, uh, the, the player grade line, when they meet, great. Take them and don't look back. Uh, the grade may be wrong. That's fine. You know, everybody's human. Everybody makes mistakes. But if the grade line and the need line don't cross, don't go anywhere near it. Take the, take the player who has the best grade. Example, uh, I can't remember the year, but in the early 2000s, um, the, the media is clamoring for us uh, to take a corner. And they, and they weren't wrong. They weren't wrong. We needed a corner. Uh, but we couldn't, we couldn't get agreement between the coaching staff and the scouting staff on who it should be. Uh, 
and and they were, you know, diametrically opposed. So you're never going to make a pick like that. <laughs> so we, we we traded we traded down uh, with the Giants. Uh, the Giants picked a corner that that we, we couldn't get agreement on, and uh, we traded down and and I was explaining it to the owner and Dominelli, our great personnel director came to me and said, you know, it's getting close to our pick. And I said, Oh yeah. Okay. So I excused myself and, and, and started looking at the board and I, and I said, well, look who's there. He said, yeah, Reggie Wayne, a wide receiver. I said, yeah, well, he, we both love him, right? He's the best player. Turned to coach Moore. He said, what do you think? He said, the, the grade is there. Let's take him. It's okay. So we took him and, the media said, why did you take Reggie Wayne? You don't need another wide receiver. You got Marvin Harrison. I said, well, you know, he was the best player available, so that's what we did. And, uh, you know, hopefully, Reg, I'll, I'll see you in Canton in August. <laughs> that, that, that one might have worked out. Well, hey, I yeah. feel like we're on, a, we're on a segue run here because Bill actually hit the subject of our next fan question. Can Bill tell some Dominelli stories that we might not have heard before? Well, I can tell a lot. Many of them are not uh, are not applicable for a family show. <laughs> See, I think people are pining for it. We might have to do a uh, Inside Football After Hours, the Dominelli episode. We'll just, we'll just put a, an, R, an R rating on the next show to get those stories out. <laughs> First of all, I have to do a thumbnail sketch of Dom. Uh, if you remember the actor Danny DeVito, Dom was a more muscular <laughs> version of Danny DeVito <laughs> and, and had the same Brooklyn accent. Uh, we'd known each other forever. We were young college coaches opposing one another back on Long Island uh, 100 years ago. Uh, he became the scouting director of the Browns and then uh, joined us as the scouting director in Carolina and came to Indianapolis uh, with me. Um, and he was quite a character, funny, outspoken, and, and an incredible judge of talent and an incredible um, creator of draft boards and developer of scouts. He was the, all, the, the whole picture. And, um, and, and we traveled the highways and byways together and had lots of fun and, and stories. So, uh, we're in the draft room, and uh, and in front of us is the draft board. On our left is uh, the DND board, which means do not draft, either medical or or because of uh, character reasons. And then to right uh, to the right was a team board, which listed all the players chosen uh, by a team in in a, in, a, in in each round. So you, uh, we could turn to the right and see exactly what. Jacksonville had chosen, Houston had chosen, etc. Now, Mr. Ursay also used to have guests into the draft room, and there were many on the first day. And uh, and so uh, uh, Dom was seated with me at the at the draft table, and I was always worried about guests in the room because they could hear stuff that was being said, and sometimes it's said in jest, and other times it's you know it's, it's stuff that people who are not involved in the process shouldn't hear, but that was Mr. Arce's wish, so that's how we did it. Um, anyway, um, we're, we're going through the draft, and, and 
one team was taking a heavy group, you know, five, four or five guys who had C's on their card. They were taken from the list on the left, the DNDC group, do not draft character, and, and, and this team was taking them. So one of the guests who was a draft Nick said, you know, you guys are pretty finicky about character, aren't you? Look at all these guys this team is getting. They're good players. And I said, yeah, well, we are finicky with character. So, you know, just left it at that. I probably was a little snippy about it. And, uh, and then that team makes the next pick. And Dom turned to me and said, you know what? This team doesn't need a coach. They need a warden. <laughs> and and the whole the whole room just broke up. And then Dom would always describe people in funny, exactly descriptive ways. So and, and so we would always apply those terms to players. So when we talked about players in the draft process, and this is not derogatory in any way, it, it was just funny. And if you hadn't heard it before, you really wouldn't know what was being said. So a player who had a very large head, and you can, they measure heads, by the way, <laughs> so you know what a guy's head size is. <laughs> Here we go. A very, a very, a very large head and, and a and a and a short neck was known as a trophy head. So, trophy heads as offensive linemen, according to Chuck Knox, who is an expert at it, don't make really good pass protectors because their height is is somehow or another altered. Their functional height is altered by the fact that they're a trophy head. So <laughs> someone would say, well, what about this offensive lineman? Dom would say, he's a trophy head. What do you want? You don't want this guy. You know, you can't win with trophy heads. And if you hadn't heard it before, like guests in the room would turn to each other and say, what? What's he talking about? <laughs> and then the other guys would nod and go, yeah, yeah, you're right. He's a trophy head. Yeah, you're right. Uh, another one was Dom would describe a person who was not a fluid athlete as a person who moved in sections. <laughs> so someone would say, what do you think about this wide receiver? You know, he's six, four, he's long, he's, he can run. And Dom would go, he's a section man. What do you want a section man for? <laughs> <laughs> and so, and then, and then the name might pop up again, you know, in a later meeting, and someone would say, "Nah, he's a section man." <laughs> Everybody knew what we were talking about. We had these these acronyms, if you will, <laughs> describe the player t to a T. You had your own code. You had your own code. You could have the other teams listening in. No one knew what the hell you're talking about. It, it, it wouldn't matter. It wouldn't matter one iota. Yeah. Then uh, <laughs> this is a. There, there were a lot of New York um, references too, which the people, the vast majority of people, didn't grow up in New York. So I would have to translate. Um, 
a player who runs with his feet akimbo, meaning if you're running straight ahead down the field and your feet point to the sideline, sort of it's commonly known as a duck walk. In New York, that's referred <laughs> to as 10 to 2, meaning 10 right. on the clock to 2 on the clock. <laughs> and so during the draft meetings, you know, a coach or a scout might say, you know, this guy, this guy runs funny. I just I can't put my finger on it, but he runs funny. Don would say he's a ten to two guy. <laughs> and you, you had to explain what that was, but of course, once everyone got the reference, it stayed that way. So there, there's a glossary of terms that I I wish I'd prepared better for the show. There's a glossary of terms that that he invented that are still in the in the scouting vernacular, and then of course. Many of our listeners have heard this story before, but it always bears repeating. We had traded Marshall Falk um, and and drafted Edger and James, and the the, the PR director came in the room and and he, he he was he looked stricken, and he said, "You you can't believe the phones. You just can't believe it. They're ringing off the hook. People are going nuts." This is the worst. They they think this is the worst pick we ever made. And Dom took his car keys out of his pocket and turned to Tom Telesco, who's now the general manager of the San Diego Chargers. Excuse me, Los Angeles Chargers. Yes. And flipped them to him and said, hey, Tommy, go start my car, will you? (laughs) (laughs) Referencing the mafia movie, you know. (laughs) A little cold. It's a little cold out there. Yeah, I got to warm it up. (laughs) The car gets blown up. (laughs) Yeah. So those those are some some dom stories that come to mind. <laughs> Pretty good. Oh, man. man. Um okay. Uh so I'll 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 read this one. Uh if Bill took over a franchise today as president, who would he pick to serve as his GM and head coach? And there's a second part here, Bill. And of the current openings what would be most attractive, Detroit, Jacksonville, or Houston? Um, I think Detroit is the most attractive because of the Ford family. They have a long history in the National Football League of treating their employees tremendously well. Um, it, it's got great facilities. It's a great football town. Um, you know, Ford Motor Company, uh, which the family is involved with, is, is an iconic company. Um, they have Matthew Stafford, um, they have Galladay, they have Hawkinson. Um, there's a lot of work to be done on defense, but I think that's that's probably a, 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 a and they have a tremendous fan base, tremendously loyal fan base. Um, so I think that probably would be number one. Houston would be number two um, because you have Deshaun Watson. That's something to build around. Um, everything else is, is really needs a lot of work. Um, and, uh, and, and then Jacksonville would be, would be my last choice because uh, among those three, um, simply because, uh, they've gutted the squad. I mean, there, there isn't other than the, the running back and maybe a couple offensive linemen. I don't think there's anybody there that can, can, can be a difference maker. And the offensive linemen really are not difference makers. So, right, I, I mm-hmm. would say that's that's probably you base the attractiveness of a job 
and keep in mind, they're only 32, so nobody's turning down any job that they're offered. Um, but you base the attractiveness of a job on the on the player personnel and the commitment of the ownership. That's what it that's what it comes down to. And who would your guys be? Um, I don't I don't want to go into that because I, I would be slighting someone. Um, All right. And and I keep that I keep that close to the vest. And when because when people in the league call, I want them to know that I'm I'm giving them a uh, an honest opinion. Uh, and one that's useful to them. So I, I'll respectfully decline. All right. Uh, Bill passes on that. Totally good. All right. Well, here we go. Now, this is this should be a fun one. Did Bill have any idea Pat McAfee would be as huge a media star as he is for the brand? And what other Polian guys does Bill think could make it big outside of the game? Peyton Manning. Well, the answer is yes, uh, yes. Um, you know, Pat. Pat's a different cat, <laughs> and uh, and I, and I thought for sure that uh, that he would have he would be in show business in 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 some way, uh, and I'm not surprised that he's that he's doing as well as he as he is. Uh, he's a good guy and a funny guy and outspoken and you know larger than life in a lot of ways. So. Um, that was no surprise. Um, I've had been fortunate enough to be associated with a great many people um, who have done well after football and will do well after football. Um, one of the interesting things is that Marv Levy always used to say that, uh, you know, smart players get better and and they grow and when I look back on our teams in Buffalo and look at how many of those guys became broadcasters, which is not an easy thing to do, by the way. Um, it's amazing. Steve Tasker, James Lofton, Jim Kelly, Mark Kelso. Uh, and, that, and, and there's, there's, there's some that I'm, 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 I'm probably forgetting. Um, you know, in a, a large amount. Peyton, obviously, in Indianapolis. Um, Jeff Saturday, doing great at ESPN. Um, uh, Marvin Harrison is going to be a big success in business. Um, we've had a couple of players um, go on to law school. Gary Brackett is a huge success in business. He has a big restaurant chain that he started from scratch. Um, and it's no accident that he was our defensive captain and starter for 10 years at middle linebacker after having been the last guy signed as a free agent on the day of the draft. Um, uh, I mentioned Marvin. Um, Reggie Wayne has is, is, is really not embarked on the next phase of his life in a big way yet, but he'll be successful in whatever he does. Um We've got a number of guys in coaching. Kyle Devan's doing well as a college coach. Um, I don't have the na the names right at, at the tips of my fingers, but um, you know, a great many because we put a high premium on character. Oh, Booger McFarland, I'm forgetting about is a broadcaster for ESPN. Um, we put a high premium on character and um, and a high premium on on intelligence and those kinds of people do well 
in later life. And Tony would always echo um, Coach Noel, who had a great uh, uh, a great deal of, of influence on on Tony by saying that you know football's a way station uh, on your way to your life's work. It it is not your life's work. It is pretty interesting. I think it's a really good question in the sense that I'd never thought about it this way. I, I wonder if we did like a analytics regression. I think you might have the most guys in broadcasting. Uh, it's possible. It's possible. It is. Yeah, it's it's a yeah. lot. Dallas Clark, by the way, is doing quite well in farming. It, it, the names keep popping up now. Dallas Clark's doing quite well in farming in, in, back in, in Iowa, and I always kid him that um, – you know, he better get my campaign contribution to his uh, Iowa gubernatorial candidacy yeah, uh, yeah. Be- before I pass on because he's so popular there. <laughs> he could be elected in a landslide. <laughs> well, again, we we have a – our questions are, are somehow melding into perfection here, Scott, the segues. Uh, so, Bill, I think this will probably be the last one before we go to the audible. Listen, excuse me. I, I, I can't forget this. Phil Hansen – uh, who was a first-round draft choice and outstanding uh, defensive end for us in Buffalo, um, actually served in the uh, South Dakota State Senate, North Dakota State Senate. Uh, so uh, he, he's had a good political career. John Fina, who was a tackle for us in Buffalo, is, uh, is a quite successful hospital sales executive. And Bruce Smith, is uh, who, of course, everyone knows as the greatest sacker of all time, is doing quite well in the real estate business in uh, in Virginia Beach. Excellent. So a lot of, a lot of successful guys. You had Lavar Ball in Carolina, didn't you? We did actually. Yeah, we had uh, hey. we had Goldberg and Lavar Ball in Carolina. Yes, we did. Qu- quite quite the uh, quite the squad. Yes, exactly. So, t- taking us back that way, Scott. Here, Bill. Here's the next. Here's the sort of the final question before the audible. At his time during e- working at ESPN, who did Bill most enjoy working with, and did that change his perspective on the media? Well, the answer is everybody. Uh, from from the, I enjoyed working with everybody there. Um, someone wrote a book about uh, ESPN called "These Guys Have All the Fun," and and, and it's uh, and, and in it the author calls ESPN the happiest place on earth. And and from my perspective, he's a hundred percent right. And uh, uh, and it was such a joy um, to work with all the people on the football side, the producers, uh, phenomenal people, really great people. Um, the, the, uh, the technicians are, 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 couldn't do more for you. Um, the makeup gals are, they're the best. I mean, you can come in at five thirty in the morning and, and you're feeling awful and they, they crack a joke or they tell you a story and, you know, start your day off on a, uh, and what should have been a sour note on a happy note, and then they make people like me look presentable. I mean, that's, that in itself is a miracle. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, having the chance to, to, to meet people from other sports. Bruce Bowen, by the way, who's one of the funniest guys in the world. Yeah, I mean, he should be a comedian. Um, Aaron Boone, a friend to this day. 
lots of funny stories. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Tibbs, Tom Thibodeau, great guy, great guy. Um, Digger Phelps, I mean, I, I can go on and on. Uh, it's just so much fun having a chance to sit down and talk to those guys and 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 see what um, see what uh, life was like from them and, and and even people like Teddy Bruschi and Chris Carter and uh, guys like that in the in the uh, uh, who've been in the NFL and 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 were competitors. It's 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 nice to get to know them as people and 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 to share stories and and hear their experiences i've le- i've learned a lot i learned a lot um and and i apologize to anyone i forgot to mention by name i apologize sincerely i i really i enjoyed working with everybody there and i miss it i miss it to this day i still correspond and talk to a lot of people from there um i i, I gotta mention my buddy chris mortensen who's uh uh, I mean, he's the ultimate insider, uh, but but he's as loyal and as dedicated and as fine a person as you'll you'll ever meet. Now, what did I learn? Well, very simply, um, the vast majority of people in the media business uh, are good people. Again, names jump to mind: Eddie Werder, for as an, I'm, I'm, these names are popping into my head as I'm speaking here, so I apologize. Um, but they have a job to do, and they're trained to see the world through stories. What is the story? They, they look at a situation. They say, what's the story here? Carson Wentz is having a bad year. What's the story here? And they pursue it from that angle. And, th- and that makes them different than those of us who work at clubs or who play for clubs because – we look at it from the perspective of how do we take the situation we're in now and make it good enough to win a football game or win a championship. So we just look at the world through different eyes. And I've come to respect them because they have a very hard job. No reporter ever gets 100% of the story. In fact, they probably... Don't even get 50% of the story. But they're so diligent and they have so much experience and they're so talented that they're able to put it together and, 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 and you know, create something that's meaningful. And, and we, on the other hand, look at the nuts and bolts. You know, they're like painters. They sit there and they got a blank canvas and they look at Carson Wentz and they make a story. They, they paint a picture. We, on the other hand, are mechanics. We look at Carson Wentz and say, well, his footwork isn't really good. And his, his progression reads aren't really good. I hope I'm making sense here. They're two different worlds. Yeah, and unless yeah. you recognize that the other, the other person has a job to do, and, is, and to use Nick Saban's phrase, seeing the world through their eyes, not yours, you can clash, but you shouldn't because 95% of the people in that business are great people, just like 95% of the people in the football uh, business are great people. And I do have to talk a little, just, just a little, about the really talented 
incredibly professional broadcasters, the hosts. And I'm going to talk to two people. One, you know, Chris Berman. I mean, he's Boomer. That's his nickname because his voice, he booms, his voice booms wherever he is. But he's so talented, so erudite, such a great memory. On air with Boomer, in an interview, in a show, when you slip, he knows it and fills the space or helps you out. That's a rare talent. And nobody knows it ever happened. You're watching the show. You don't know it happened. But he did it. And the other person who, who, in my humble opinion, is in that category, and keep in mind I have a small universe here, very small universe. I didn't work with everybody at ESPN. But of the people I worked with, Susie Culber is absolutely incredible. She is such a pro. First of all, you never know what her feelings are on any subject. She, she, she's a, the, the broadcaster's broadcaster in that regard. And secondly, she runs a show as well as anybody I've ever worked with or seen. And Susie got me out of more trouble than, than anyone can imagine. <laughs> I mean, I'd blank, out, I'd blank out on a name or, or, or my train of thought would wander and she'd just jump in and throw me a life preserver and no one would ever know what happened. And, she, and she's a wonderful person on top of that. Um, Wendy Nix is, is, a, is a younger version, of, not younger, but a less experienced version of, 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 of Susie. She's, she's terrific, too. It was great working with, with, with them. Um, just so many great people. I, I can't say enough about it. Yeah, pretty I, cool. I, it, well, th- it was a really interesting supplement to everything else you had done in your career, though. I was, it was, I thought it was a really interesting uh, time for you, and uh, obviously, you appreciated all that. Oh, I was blessed to have the opportunity to do it, and I learned so much about the broadcasting business. It's really, uh, uh, it, it's a, it's an amazing business, and that's a great, great place to work. Very cool. Well, guys, we want to thank you very much for all your questions. We didn't get to nearly as many as I thought we would. So I have a hunch we have a Christmas present coming for everybody towards the end of the month where we, where we might just do this again because uh, we got a lot of other stuff to get to. But we wanted to end with sort of one of the kind of headline audibles from this week. Bill, can you walk us through a little bit what happened in Denver this week? Yes, Um Denver, uh, let me backtrack and give you the, the, the foundational basis for all of this. I serve on the in-season competition committee, which is an advisory group that, that deals with um, the issues specific to COVID because the regular competition committee obviously is conflicted because their, their, their teams are playing and, and you need some outside people without a rooting interest to kind of take a different point of view. Tom Toughlin's on that committee, Rick Smith, Charlie Casserly, uh, you know, many others. So um, at the outset, the commissioner said our goal is to play 256 games in 17 weeks. And having said that, he also said we're going to move heaven and earth, do everything we can, spend all the money that we need to spend to make sure that we have testing, that we have contract contact tracing, that we have protocols 
that work, and then every team follows, and we will be flexible. We'll adjust as, as, as time goes by. Um, our committee was charged with looking at situations that might, might, might or might not occur, and in conjunction with the regular competition committee, take a look at how the rosters are structured and make some recommendations as to how we might best serve meeting that goal of, uh, of 256 games in 17 weeks. Uh, having said that, the commissioner also said that we're going to make decisions based solely on medicine and with the uh, advice and consent of medicine and science, and we will never let competitive issues seep into the decision to cancel a game, to sit a player down, um, to do anything that would affect the field. Said another way, anything that takes place on the field is going to take place in, within the context of medicine and science. So that's the background. Um, we as a committee concurred in a statement that Troy Vincent, uh, the director of uh, vice president of football operations, put forth, um, which said that we're expanding the rosters to 71 players, 53 plus 16 on the practice squad. Uh, we liberalized injured reserve like it's never been liberalized before in the history of the league. Three weeks on injured reserve. Uh, a minor injury. Um, you can bring as many people back from injury reserve as, as you wish. Um, no designation. Uh, so if you presume at any given time there are six people on IR who are el eligible to come back, you, you know, you're dealing with almost 75 players when it's all said and done. And the reason for that was because our committee said if one position group, i.e. an offensive line, gets wiped out. You just bring up five players from practice squad or injured reserve, and you play them. We're going to play the game. Now, you as a team can decide whether or not you want to sit Tom Brady, as an example, if you're playing behind the practice squad offensive line. That's your choice. We're not going to tell you what to do. But we're going to tell you that the game's going to be played because you have 76 players at your disposal, basically. And it's up to you as a club to set that roster in a way that works for every possible contingency. One of the things that Bruce Ahrens, um, who is a quarterback expert, started right from the beginning was to say, um, uh, quarantine one quarterback. If you have three, quarantine the third. Don't let them meet with the other two. Don't let them on the field with the other two. Have them work with the practice squad separately. Have them go to the meetings virtually so there's no chance that he could be infected. Um, Denver actually had four, and their practice squad uh, quarterback was the guy who became infected. Now, the protocols require that any time a player is in the facility, any time he's on the field and not competing, he wore a mask and social distance. The Denver quarterbacks did not do that. They met in one room, all four, 
They did not socially distance. And most importantly, they did not wear masks. And as a result, uh, by the time we got all the contract tracing done, it was because they hadn't reported in a timely manner some positives in that group. Uh, It was Saturday morning, and all four quarterbacks determined solely by Dr. Sills and his medical committee were out of the game, and it was too late for them to get a replacement. Even though there is a pre-screened, pre-COVID screened group of quarterbacks who are available on the street, had they notified the league office in time, meaning Friday night, they could have gotten one of those or two of those quarterbacks to play in the game. But their timing was incorrect. They didn't get it right. And as a result, they got stuck without a quarterback. And the league went back to the basic tenant that we started with way back in July, which is that we will only postpone, cancel, or move games based on medical and scientific evidence. We won't do it for competitive purposes, period, or artistic purposes, period, or television purposes, period, only for medical and scientific reasons. So that's why what happened took place, and, uh, and, and, and we were right to do it. And, and I got to add, I have to add that the, the commissioner, Roger Goodell, has done a lot of great things during his tenure as commissioner of the NFL. But he's never been as good, as visionary, as communicative, as steadfast as he has been through this. You know, they said about Winston Churchill, World War II, or Winston Churchill said World War II is the British Empire's finest hour. Um, Roger Goodell's finest hour has been COVID. He's, he's, he's been a magnificent and steadfast, visionary, smart, dedicated leader. And that's the reason that we're reaching week 12 uh, and, and really have, have done an amazing job. That and, of course, Troy Vincent and all the people that work in football operations and the medical people as well. Bill, just to close the loop, why why don't you compare for the listeners the Denver situation to the often postponed Pittsburgh Baltimore game? Why why they're trying to keep one alive where they were, you know, Denver had to play as they were. Well, D- Denver had to play as they were because they had a position group wiped out and didn't make arrangements to have replacements. It's that simple. Now, the, 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 the Pittsburgh-Baltimore game has been postponed because they, we want to play it, if at all possible, A. And, and B, uh, Dr. Sills and his people believe that if we get by tomorrow morning without any positives, that we're good to go medically and scientifically. And that's the only decision that has to be made. Uh, look, if, if Roger Goodell and the NFL wanted to do the correct thing by television, the correct thing financially, 
because Sunday night football is big money. They would have played the game on Sunday on Thursday night. Excuse me. They would have played the game on Thursday night. But they didn't. NBC's going to want make goods for this game. It's being played in the afternoon because NBC won't preempt the uh, Rockefeller Center uh, tree lighting ceremony and show. <laughs> <laughs> and that's that's fine. I mean, that's yeah, yeah. that's that's yeah. There's no way the ratings for that are as good as what the Raven Steelers would be, right? Well, I don't know. I, I don't know, but that's NBC's decision to make. I mean, when you look at the number that the Redskins, or excuse me, the Washington football team and the Cowboys put up on Thanksgiving, one, that Thursday night game would have been a massive number. I You can hit me in the head with a pan if the tree lighting does a better number in prime time than Raven Steelers. Well, don't forget, that, that that's, that's my point. That's why Rodgers... Roger's conviction and steadfastness about oh, yeah. doing things right from a scientific standpoint and a medical standpoint and a player and staff uh, uh, a safety standpoint is so laudable. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a big, huge number of people that, that don't see our game. That's not good for the game in the long run. But in this particular case, he had a hard decision to make, and he's made it. Each and every time. Very true. Well, if I learn nothing else from this episode, and I'm going to tell my wife this tonight, I might be a trophy head. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you're at least you're not at least you're not attended to. So, yeah. Well, I might be. I don't know. I got to test that. As soon as I get up, I'm going to do some. Uh, I'm going to do the duck walk and see what I get. Well, thank you guys. This was truly, truly fun to do. And as we said earlier, thank you guys so much for all of the questions this week. Uh, I'm pretty sure, based off of just the sheer outpouring of questions and how many we didn't get to, I have a hunch that another one is coming. But uh, thank you guys so much. Thank you. Yep. And Bill, Bill, thanks for the for the great answers. Thanks for the great questions, everybody. Hope everybody had a happy and safe Thanksgiving. And like Scott said, we hope to have a Christmas present for you with another show like this. Thank you. Stay safe, everybody, and mask up, please. Bye-bye. Stay safe. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.